0: This was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets.
1: So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top.
0: I went from a sale of, you
1: know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey there, it's John Morillo. Listen, if you're brand new to Built to Sell Radio, welcome. It's good to have you along for the ride. We've been doing this show now for five years. I've interviewed literally a different entrepreneur every week for the past five years. And I've taken some of their best practices, their, their tips and tricks and negotiation hacks, and distilled them all into a field guide. It's a book called The Art of Selling your business. And it is a little bit of a recipe card for you to punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating with an acquirer. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, where we help you punch above your weight in negotiation to sell your business. I'm your host, John Warlow. And today on the show, we're going to hear from Michael Kaplan. Hey, Michael built a great business, Zero Res Carpet and Living Services Care. It was a franchise organization that he bought into at 300 grand in revenue, ultimately sold out of at $17 million in annual revenue. But that's not cool part of this story. Michael had a shotgun agreement with his partner. And as he will describe, he had to trigger that shotgun agreement. And he'll talk you through what's involved in a shotgun agreement and how you need to structure it to ensure that Both you and your partner are protected, and more importantly, the company you built is protected and will live on past any dispute between you and your partner. So if you've ever had partnerships in a business or you've been curious about a shotgun agreement, today's episode will demystify the whole process for you. He'll also talk about the awkward teenage years, which I really related to in any company where It's too small to be big and too big to be small. It's where profits get shrunk and it can be difficult to get out of. He'll talk about how they got out of it. He'll talk about how to create word of mouth for your company and the important role net promoter score played for their business. He'll talk about the danger of aspirational core values. What are those? Well. Michael will define them for you. He'll talk about the danger of trading misery for dollars and when to know the right time to sell your company. Here to tell you the entire story is Michael Kaplan. Michael Kaplan, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Zero res carpet cleaning. I think I know what this company does. It cleans carpets, but tell me the story. How did you get involved in this business?
0: Boy, um, largely by mistake. Um, So through a a handful of uh, miscues and misturns and proper decisions, I ended up in grad school and uh, (laughs) didn't want to practice law, wanted to uh, start or buy a business. And I wrote these lofty big business plans, huge ideas. I'm going to change the world. I realized that was really hard and that I probably wasn't qualified to do it. Um, and the first business opportunity I came across that really resonated where I was like, I can do this, I could wrap my arms around it, it was local service. It was, it was a carpet cleaning company I stumbled upon with some friends. And uh, we decided we were gonna buy it and fix it. And I'd spend you know, three years in operations and then I'd go on and start a private equity firm and try to you know, uh, do turnarounds on a, a bigger scale.
1: So the plan was to to buy this business, zero res carpet cleaning, and improve it, and then potentially sell it down the
0: road. Um, you know, keep it or flip it. I uh, Didn't really have that vision, but it was doing about three hundred thousand bucks a year. Um, it was losing probably forty thousand bucks a year. Um, so the thought was scale it a little bit, bring in some efficiency while kind of figuring out how a business really worked um i didn't want to be one of those investment banker private equity types who was just a spreadsheet jockey and didn't really know what made a business work how to how to work with the people how to uh engage with the PL in a meaningful way i didn't want it to just be academic um but we uh It turned out home service can be a lot harder than one thinks, and uh, there were a lot more moving parts than we ever anticipated, for sure.
1: So, three hundred grand in revenue, uh, losing forty grand a year on the bottom line. What did you find when you got in there? Like, what what was the state of the business?
0: Well, um, you know, it's a franchise. Um, Typically, when one buys a franchise, um, say you go out and you buy a Papa John's. Um, you can rest assured that Papa made a whole lot of pizzas and uh, had opened a whole lot of stores and, and worked with vendors and done the media and done scouting and all that stuff before you shell out the big bucks. Well, uh, this franchise was more of a startup. Uh, they had a great concept for how to clean carpet, um, but they you know some of the details were a little bit fuzzy, like um, how do you uh, maintain the equipment? How do you source the product? How do you um acquire the customers um so the business model was just a little bit missing um so so we came in
1: to be clear you bought a franchise not the franchisor but you bought a franchise yes is that right and did that come with a geographic exclusivity where you had a patch to work
0: um we had uh negotiated and paid for um the state of minnesota and western wisconsin um, turns out that there was some nuance to that, and we end up reworking our deal a little bit. Uh, uh, it, the, the franchise sales guy, um, who was in charge of delegating territories, was also the guy who owned one zip code in Minnesota. So he sold this one zip code in Minnesota while packaging it as this breadth of territory. So it was a little bit of tomfoolery, but we worked it out in the first couple months once it became clear.
1: Got it. So you you buy this. Business. How did you come up with the cash? Like 300 grand is you're just coming out of school. You got a bunch of debt, I'm guessing. Like, not maybe, maybe you did have 300 grand sitting around, but, but, uh, yes, but I'd imagine it's, it was a tough nut. Like, how did you come up with money?
0: Yeah. So I did have a little bit of cash. Um, I was not the lead investor and I wasn't the person who found the deal. Um, my one of three business partners, uh, was in real estate development. He had a local um, or or a handful of uh, real estate uh, uh, retail firms, like uh, brokerage uh, companies. Uh, He had a a flipping company and a title company. So he was kind of the real estate baron. Mind you, it was 2006. So uh, the tide shifted a little bit uh, come 08, 09, but um, he was the big bucks.
1: So he put in money. Does that mean he, he, did you guys split the equity equally or did he get a lion's share because he put the cash up or did like, how did you guys divvy up the equity in the meeting?
0: We, we were about 60, 40. Um, uh, I think I was, you know, 43 and a half um, mm-hmm. uh, when we ended things. Um, but uh, we had a couple sweat equity partners and I took a little bit of discount on my cash up front because I didn't personally guarantee anything. Um, again, Oh eight, oh nine shifted that, and uh, equity shifted back. But what way? we, you know, we he, he was he was uh, flipping houses and selling houses and moving and shaking, and he'd come by the shop and drink a beer once in a while. But uh, the intention was not that uh, the lead investor would have been uh, active in the business. Got it. How did two thousand eight change that? Um. Well, uh, two things happened. Well, a lot of things happened, but uh, the two meaningful for me were. One, our business started blowing up, and uh, you know, just going gangbusters. And we got some great press. We had hunted down a uh, a newspaper guy um, wrote for the business section in Minneapolis, and um, got some good press. And we thought, you know, we'd get a couple of customers. We had all the phones lit up for about ten weeks. Um, we just went gangbusters because you know we were a green cleaning company, and it was kind of a local feel good story. And it really opened our eyes. The other thing, uh, you know, the world fell apart and everything related to housing, mortgages, etc., cetera, um, you know, became a dumpster fire. And my business partner was joint in several uh, liability on, you know, 20, 25 million of real estate development that was, you know, 70, 80% pre-sold, you know, 708, and it went down to 0% pre-sold and he handed the keys back and filed in 09.
1: Wow. When so, you say filed, you mean filed for bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: And so he, you know, he, was, uh, he was the guarantor on all this stuff. I, took, I literally took a discount on uh, how far my dollars went so that I didn't have to be. But all of a sudden, we've got no line of credit. We've got no ability to buy equipment. Our credit cards get shut down, bank accounts frozen, as we're doing more business than you know, we've ever seen. So uh, we had to start over, do a bunch of RFPs with banks, and just you know, run like crazy, trying to convince someone that okay, you know, the balance sheet's not super strong, but look at the trajectory and look at the story, which, uh, as most small businesses know, is not an easy feat.
1: Why did you need capital? You were up and going. I'm assuming customers paid you. Was it a negative cash flow cycle? Like, how did you get paid, and why did you need sort of the banks to fund your growth?
0: Well, first and foremost, we weren't smart enough to have a subscription model. So that's, that was our big problem. No, um, that, that was part of it. That, that, it was a plug plug for you. Um, yeah, and, no, I take it. Any time. <laughs> so, you know, carpet cleaning is $300 transactions and you can be a Chuck in his truck and make great money and your margins are better than if you had employees, but you don't have any scale. Um, we're, the awkward teenage years where you've got three, four, five, six trucks. Um, the math just doesn't work really well because to support those trucks, you've got enough infrastructure that will suck all your profits. And then once you get to eight, 10, 30, 40 trucks, you know, start scaling, all of a sudden the margins come back and you're just printing money. So we um, at the end of 08, we had five trucks. Um, we had business booked out about two months, which is not typical. Um, you know, a healthy business uh, cycle would have us booked out about five days, uh, where we can really uh, communicate and you know handle screw and and surprises. But you know, being booked out weeks was really challenging. So we we had plans and and capabilities to to double the business overnight. Um, we just didn't have any capital to uh, to throw at trucks. Meanwhile, you know, it's it's a goofy franchise system where. Uh, they bring all their water with them. Uh, they use electrolyzed oxidative water rather than the typical uh, chemistry and surfactants used in carpet cleaning. So um, it's specialized equipment, and uh, we were reworking it uh, with uh, with new vendors because the franchisor model of you know uh, building their own trucks that cost three times the industry norm was not sustainable.
1: So, yeah, what do these trucks cost with the special water?
0: The the franchise or trucks that they were building, uh, they were about 130,000. Um, we reworked them, and uh, with uh, with a company called Hydromaster, where all the parts were stainless steel, and it was a little bit overkill. But you know the the water would eat you know brass and copper, so we said better safe than sorry. Uh, we worked them down to about 72,000 with a brand new Chevy included. So all the equipment, all the stickers, wraps, ready roll.
1: Got it. So was that a area of conflict with the franchise or that you weren't buying their trucks that you were sort of going outside to buy gear?
0: So when we bought the franchise in 0- 06, there was like Three weeks later, there was a mutiny where franchisees got out their pitchforks. They said, we're mad as hell. We're not going to take any more. And they're ready to storm the castle. And we're like, whoa, 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 we just bought this thing. Like, let's not burn it down just yet. Um, so we uh, we helped quell the rebellion. Uh, we joined all the committees, got on the marketing committee, technology committee, uh, ops committee, and, um, you know, donated our time to try and fix this thing uh, in collaboration with other franchisees and the franchisor. So we had their blessing to, uh, after 18 months of begging, crying, and pleading, um, uh, we had their blessing to, to work with HydroMaster to, to redesign the vehicles, and we had the permission to buy one. Um, and HydroMaster had the right to redesign the vehicle for us as long as we bought 20, so uh, there was a little bit of tomfoolery and a little bit of, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll figure this out together. Uh, they knew they could sell us a ton of vehicles and we knew we could buy a ton. We just didn't officially get on the same page for a couple of years. Got it.
1: So where does it go from there? You're in these teenage years where you got five trucks, not making any money. 2008, your partner files. So what happened to is it is it a guy, your partner who had 60% of your business, like, does he ask for a check to cover some of his debts? Or how did, how did he get out of your business, if you will?
0: So he, um, uh, he, uh, he didn't get out, he got in. So he was um, uh, a majority partner. He was not active, didn't have a desk, didn't have a job. Um, eventually in 2009, you realized, well, crap, I got to pay some bills and it's not going to be through selling real estate. And so he came in and, he, you know, hopped on a truck and, you know, earned a cleaning commission for a minute. Then he got on a small salary, brilliant business guy, great leader, um, probably 20, 25 years my senior. Um, and, you know, I'm 26 at the time. Uh, I guess 09, you know, I had three years. And, um, you know, we were just scrappy together trying to figure out um, how can we, how can we, make the most of this thing where, um, we had, so we got that little bit of good press. Um, we started running really, really hard and, um, invested in marketing at the beginning of 09 that started taking off in March of 09. And, you know, um, before we know it, business is just continually flowing. And, um, uh, he, as he filed, um, you know, we had a conversation and you know, we were great friends and, just said, listen, um, you know, I've got uh the biggest chunk outside of your chunk. If if the government comes for it or the uh bankruptcy court comes for it, I'm gonna make sure nobody wants to buy it. Um, because nobody's gonna take on you know a uh a, a partnership with a really disgruntled partner. And I said, I'll be that disgruntled partner for you. So gave them a little bit of security. Um, as far as you know, helping figure things out. We um Uh, We guaranteed a a mortgage with him. Um, Nobody wants to touch uh, a person, you know, going through bankruptcy and and let them buy a house. We figured that out. It it was really collaborative. Um, You know, we we had, in spite of uh, the age difference, in spite of the, um, you know, uh, equity difference, we had uh, a great collaboration.
1: Got it. And so to be clear, when he, he files for bankruptcy, As I understand the process, you know the bankruptcy court says, "Okay, what are your assets?" And he would have had to say, "Well, I own a, a share more than half of this thing called Zero Res Carpet Cleaning, Minneapolis." And presumably, the bankruptcy court would have said, "Okay, we'll liquidate that, sell that, and so so you can pay off some of these other debts to these homeowners, et cetera." Did am I getting it right? Like, is that what happened?
0: Um, you know, nobody called. Uh, I think he put down that it was worth about twenty thousand bucks, and nobody touched it.
1: Okay, got it. And so, was it worth twenty thousand bucks? Like, was it worth more than that in your mind?
0: Um, I, it was. I mean, we um we 'o six the business cleaned about three hundred thousand. We did about seven hundred thousand. Uh, In 'o seven, 'o eight was about a million two. And at the beginning of '09, when things started rolling on the bankruptcy, uh, we were pacing two and a half million that year. So in, I mean, it wasn't revenue. Um, it, revenue. it wasn't it, it. wasn't printing money, but it had it had legs and had a story that one could tell. So I, I'd say it was definitely. I mean, we had assets worth more than twenty thousand bucks for sure. But it just, I think, it had enough hair on it that nobody thought to do anything with it. Um, meanwhile, you know. You think back then uh it, it wasn't the only bankruptcy in town. There were a whole lot of whole lot of hurt and I think the courts were strapped and uh the uh uh bankruptcy uh supervisors or whatever they're called, I uh, had plenty of uh uh, uh balls in the air. Uh that I I don't know. It just uh it was a mess, but uh it was a, a pleasant surprise for us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So where does it go from there? So you've got a couple million in, in top line revenue. Business is, is, is picking up and, and going well. What happens next?
0: We we just ran like hell. Um, we we tried to figure out you know how do we stay out of our own way? How do we how do we hire everybody we can um, and make sure you know carpet cleaning is just a it's a wonderful terrible business. I mean you go into a, any individual house, um, you've got a residential. Customer, so they're uh, by definition a pathological liar. They're asking you to clean something that hasn't been cleaned, uh, but has been walked down, vomited on, and spilled on for ten years straight, and it looks uniformly bad. Like it's just it. It all looks the same. Then you're going to go and you're going to extract the dirt and show them all the problems, because there are traffic patterns where the fibers used to be like super tightly wound, now they look like that, so they look darker. You've got the areas where, you know, the dog used to pee, so that's discolored and the spaghetti got thrown, so that's stained. So now it looks totally different. It looks a lot worse a lot of times. And you do that time and time and time again, It with, with labor that's, you know, a 20 year old millennial. Um, it's pretty challenging, um, and, you know, so we we had to we had to learn quite a bit about how to communicate um, very very well um, in advance of finding problems, um, how to sell uh, aggressively while having people still hug us and love us to make sure that you know the value exceeded the price while maximizing the price that we could, um, and you know, um, doing this while you know trying to figure out how do we leverage the hell out of ourselves um, and buy 10 trucks a year um, without really knowing, do the customers like us, will they call us back? So it it had a, a handful of gaps in the system that we had to figure out. So we had to really learn um, on the employee side, uh, how, to, how to define what the box was that a great employee would fit in and really make sure that we only hired people that fit in that box. You know, at the beginning of 09, there were doctors and lawyers and professors that were out of work and we hired all of them, thinking, well, he's a PhD. He'd be great on a truck. He's a great communicator. Meanwhile, he hates every minute of it. And, you know, loathes going into work. He's not going to offer great customer service. You need like a former landscaper who's just great with people and loves, you know, not working in the snow. Um, that, that's a great employee. So we had that learning. Um, we, um, we found, uh, Uh, a company called Listen360 that uh, did net promoter score surveys that helped answer the do our customers like us question. Um, And, you know, we're spending 720,000 bucks a year buying 10 trucks a year without really knowing is our crazy scheme of, okay, we pay too much for customer acquisition today on the hopes that we can re-engage them for a 50 cent postcard tomorrow. We didn't really know do they like us, but Listen360 and net promoter score helped us Identify, okay, uh, we do have room for improvement, but they do like us and they probably will call us back. And the business got a whole lot easier, uh, you know, a handful of years down the road as those masses started to cycle back through as repeats.
1: Yeah. So, net promoter score, I'll just define that for our audience. For those who don't know, Fred Reichelt developed it, wrote a book about it, wrote a number of books about it. Scale zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend? Uh, this company to a friend or a colleague is the question you ask your customers, You buckets your customers into a nine or ten. Those are your promoters who give you a nine or ten on that question. Your sevens and eights, so you're called passives, you're zero to six, you're detractors. And I believe a world-class score is 50% or greater. Average is 15% net promoter score when you subtract your detractors from your promoters I think the average is 15% across all companies all industries and i think world class is 50% plus so when you first got your nps what what did you find like what where where were you at
0: 72 wow
1: so amazing and so what red Rykel would tell you is that two things are going to happen when you have a net promoter score of, of that high. One is people will repeat purchase. They'll come back to you. And second, they will refer you. So did those two things happen for you?
0: It, it, it was, it was a, a wonderful and, uh, amazing blessing. Um, we had no idea what to expect, but, um, we, we had probably 35% give or take of, uh, past custom or customers that just had service taking the survey. So we felt like we were getting a good sample and we had an amazing score. Um, we always subscribed to the notion that goods, the enemy are great. And so, you know, we obsessed about it. Uh, we uh, used it to um, be a significant portion of our pay plan for our service technicians. And, you know, just dove into the data. The, the cool thing, not that this is a listen 360 commercial but that particular software uh, would let you dive in behind the numbers and say, okay, under these circumstances or from these referral sources or from these technicians, you have these variables. And it really chopped up the data in some interesting ways where when people bought more, you got higher uh, customer service scores. When people bought the minimum, we had the worst customer service or net promoter score um, hmm. because uh, in theory, you know, people were, if, took the approach. If they're not buying on flying, they're just, you know, communication, they judge the house or judge the people or we're in a rush. They did a service minimum and it was tough to have value exceed price. But if you've got price exceeding value, it's really tough to have somebody say, boy, that was a great experience. They said, damn, I didn't buy a lot, but that was expensive. Um, But when you flip that equation, no matter how much people buy, if, if they got, you know, love and care and, really felt that um, you did a great job, um, it becomes more memorable and uh, easier to, to give you a higher score.
1: Yeah. Great, great point. So many questions are around that promoter score. So you mentioned you tied your employee compensation to NPS. How did you avoid employees gaming the system? Like we've all been on the other end of that, where like someone come, you know, says, "Look, I'm going to send you a survey, and if you like me, make sure you score me a ten because my bonus yeah. is contingent on it." So you kind of you kind of run the risk of of it getting gamed. How did you avoid that?
0: So we and we did run into this uh, where uh, you know we ended up uh, at, at, before I left, we had six locations, and our Omaha location had like a 93 or 94 percent net promoter score, and yeah, who knows what they were doing? Um, we we worked on it. Um, we tried to de incentivize it. We tried to prioritize and spiff around other elements of quality. Um, and you know, it was it was a little bit out of sight, out of mind because it was in Omaha, um, and it was really tricky. But in uh, in our primary location, we just you know we really tried to talk to customers. We really tried to um, have close communication with the technicians and make sure that they had. Not just a pay plan, uh, and not just incentives, but really had a why for what they were doing, and you know our core values uh, reigned supreme uh, it, for the most part. So um, it, it just required lots of communication, and anytime you know you smelt something funny, you had to dig in or have somebody make sure that they really wrapped their arms around it.
1: How do you come up with a why cleaning carpets? I mean. <laughs> All due respect, it's kind of not a sexy business, right? You're cleaning carpets. So like, how do you get people excited about, <laughs> about
0: cleaning people's carpets? So um, we, we had a, a, good, a really cool set of core values. And uh, one of the speeches I was uh, asked to give at uh, New Employee Orientation was about uh, the core value called live deliberately. And uh, what I would say is, listen... Um, we're not crazy. We understand that most of you, many of you may not be here 10 years from now, and that that's perfectly okay. This can be a launching pad. Uh, for those who are here 10 years from now, that's awesome. We hope that you, you know, it's very, very fulfilling. But um, it, it's not about the act of cleaning. It's not about the sales. Uh, but if, if you want to be a professional guitarist, you want to be a writer, you want to be a, um, you know, a salesman for Medtronic, that's great utilize your opportunity here and your time uh garner some skills and um you know learn how to talk to people learn how to be in new environments and uh how to sell some stuff and uh make some money to support you know the things you're wanting to do and you know wake up every day with purpose and say i'm going to be the person i want to be today and you know build yourself up and you know follow the golden rule and you know that kind of language and mentality uh eat into their heads day after day, um, helps provide a why. Um, and, you know, we gave um, our team members great autonomy, uh, people in the field and people on the phone to make their own decisions and that empowerment, they could call up the office and say, hey, you know, this lady, um, she has uh, emphysema and, you know, uh, the reason she's getting her carpets cleaned is, you know, for better indoor air quality. What can we do for her? well, let's clean her air ducts for free or let's clean her carpet for free or let's, uh, tell her the next one's free and, you know, finding ways where they can do good in spite of it just being carpet clean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you Got know, it. you know, a huge part of, uh, of most people's enjoyment of work is, is culture and community. And, uh, you can't spell culture without the word cult. And, um, we are really focused on, um, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily mission driven, but we were really um, obsessive about, uh, you know, uh, presenting themes to the team. And, you know, it, it was, uh, we, we, were, we were providing a service that was really helping people. Um, we were saving the world one carpet at a time. Uh, we were obsessing about growth for good. That was another of our core values where uh, we weren't just growing bigger and uh, acquiring more customers or more locations, uh, for profit. Yes. Profit is a requirement of every healthy company. And we, we ingrained that in our team, but we growth for good meant that, you know, we're trying to find more customers and uh, spread more happy so that uh, Rick who's in the phone room someday might run a phone room in Poughkeepsie or uh, Sally who's on a truck cleaning carpet might uh, be running a team of people who runs trucks in Omaha. So it really, you know, um, we got people fired up and they felt like they were part of something.
1: What impact do you think codifying your values had on the growth of your company?
0: I, th- I think it's huge. I mean, I, um, and you know, honestly, it's, uh, uh, my belief in those values is, uh, why, uh, I blew up my life and uh, sold my business and I'm sure we'll get to that, but, um, it uh, I think it was a massive part because it it gave everyone a compass, and it not just a moral compass, but it helped them uh, figure out how to how to do what the job they were being asked uh, to do really meant. I mean, you can have a a robot sit there and answer phone calls, but you know you can do it more efficiently online. Um, but how you did teach people? Oh, go ahead.
1: No, I was just gonna say, how did you make it? real like I'll, I'll come clean i'm a i'm a, i'm heavily skeptical of values i've read jim collins work and i know that you know, vision of values are critical Etc. Yet I see so many bad examples of execution, right? Like people have got the teamwork poster with the rowers on the, oh, yeah. you know, in, their, in their boardroom and, and trustworthy. And, you know, and, and I see so many terrible executions of this concept that I've become kind of jaded about it. So I'd be curious, like, how did you make it real for people and actually work?
0: Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. Aspirational values are so destructive. And Patrick Lencioni does it, has a couple great articles about it. And um, it, it just, you know, if you're, if you're a team of accountants and you're not like a fun workplace and you have a core value of work hard, play hard, like it's just like it, it's grown worthy and it's destructive. But if you can really teach people, you know, um, and, and champion people, um, around values that really describe what the team is, it just, it has an amplification effect because people have the vernacular and the language to be able to talk about, um, the, the things that are already important to the team. And so when you bring, uh, uh, Sam, the new guy in all of a sudden the people have the language, uh, to be able to say, Hey, here's how we do what we do. And, uh, this is why. And so it just, it gives them the tools to um, express the things that they already believe. So aspirational values really bad. Values that are guiding principles and describe a team uh, that everyone can champion because it's at the core of how you're already operating. Um, those can be really, really powerful. I don't know That's if I great. use any words that made any sense. but
1: Yeah, no, I think you did. I think it's a great distinction between Again, and you, you said it eloquently, aspirational values, which are things you hope to be versus what you are, and just articulating what you are for good or for bad. Love
0: that. So, so yes. we, had, we had guys, uh, one quick anecdote we had guys at one of our shops who um, would, um, you know, you got six trucks out, five of them come back. They'd hang around, they'd play basketball, and they'd drink a little bit of beer. And when the last guy would come home, They'd help him break his truck down or someone would go out and help him finish his job and they'd come back and some you know one of the managers would say oh thank you and they'd give a high five and they'd say team is family bro of course and it's just like you know haha team is family that's one of our core values but they're living it because you know no man left behind was kind of the concept
1: love it love it good so where are you at in your journey here so how big is the company when you start to turn your attention to sell you, like how many employees, how many trucks, revenue, any, any proxy for, for size, it, it would be helpful.
0: Um, you know, we peaked at, uh, six locations. We had probably 180 ish employees and, you know, probably 17, 18 million in, uh, top line revenue.
1: Wow. This is a long way from, <laughs> from where you were with five or six trucks. That's incredible.
0: Oh, we created all kinds of problems along the way, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it, uh, it kind of happened by accident that we opened up Omaha. We had a uh, employee who said he had a ton of money uh, through an inheritance and he was going to go out there and ask us to you know, be a, a tiny investor and help him along the way. Turned out that we were the lead investors and we helped him along the way, um, but that was fine. Um, and that kind of vetted the model and we realized, well, crap, uh, this thing, you know, the things we thought we understood, we might actually understand. So then we hired a company called Dietrich RPM and they went out and did um, uh, surveys. They um, did online and phone call surveys of thousands of people in um, 10 different markets that we said, well, we think these might be the right markets. And we think this might be what the the magic in Minnesota is. And we, we weren't really sure. So we surveyed Minnesotans too. And it turned out that we were able to quantify what the mojo was and we found markets that aligned with uh, the psychographics and demographics in Minnesota. So we ended up uh, moving uh, the business into St. Louis and Pittsburgh, um, and uh, had options on a couple other markets as well. Uh, we were bought looking, Charlotte what, and Savannah
1: as well. What did what did the research tell you about the psychographics you were evaluating? You were you were looking at homeowners in in these markets and trying to understand how they think? Is that what the research was?
0: Yeah. As well as, um, you know, do, uh, do the major metropolitan areas have basements, you know, basements, uh, more basement, more carpet, more square footage. Um, hmm. so colder markets, um, uh, were good. Um, we liked, um, greener markets, educated markets. Um, we wanted markets that were big enough, but small enough. So, uh, our, our magic, uh, media, um, outlet was radio as weird as that is, but, uh, we bought a ton of radio and, um, having markets that, um, outside of that survey, we, uh, we went out and and met with, uh, radio reps at a bunch of, uh, stations to really understand how efficiently can we buy, are there good programming things that align with, uh, the things that we believe, uh, make a good radio buy, um, as well as, um, you know, just, um, uh, uh, the you know in Minnesota there's kind of that Scandinavian um, uh, uh, tendency toward clean where your mother-in-law is going to yell at you if your house isn't clean um, and we looked for for a little bit of that how do people prioritize their home and and
1: that's fascinating that's fascinating so you got to 17 million in revenue again what's the ownership structure at this point so is your former real estate buddy still the majority shareholder or owner, or where where is the equity at at this point?
0: So we've got um, we we liked partnerships. We liked um, strategic partnerships with the right people. Um, one because it's really fun, and two because um, it, you bring the right people into the room and magic can happen. And uh, if they know what they're doing in their area of expertise, uh, you can lean on them to to better yourself in the organization. So in Omaha, we had uh, a diverse investment group where um, a franchisee from Des Moines uh, joined because of proximity and whatnot. Um, And he was interested and we brought along our general manager. When we uh, opened up Pittsburgh and St. Louis, we actually uh, negotiated with the franchisor. Um, They were looking to raise some money and uh, the capital markets and debt markets were not kind to them. Uh, And we said, hey, you know, give us more equity in what we're doing and we'll, we'll be your lender. So um, we gave them a little over a million bucks. They stopped charging us royalties and they gave us the right to open a handful of locations without paying a royalty. So we went to a handful of investors and raised some money. um, We kept 50% of the equity between me and my uh, partner in Minnesota. And um, we charged them a royalty to help pay off the loan that we uh, borrowed money to give to the franchisor. So. Convoluted circumstances, but everyone was kind of tied in. The lead investor in the uh, uh, Pittsburgh-St. Louis expansion was my business partner's son, uh, which had oh all kinds God, of like com- a really? complications. Really, <laughs> one, You're one of the rules for we, punishment, man. <laughs> oh man, uh, eyes wide open, right uh, now. Uh, but we said no friends, no family, no waterfall distributions, no um, uh, you know repayment of invested capital. We're going to be fifty percent partners up front, and you know, here's the deal. And then my business partner son gets involved, and all those rules, you know, go out the window, and we start negotiating who has what, and you know, what the waterfall distribution is going to look like. Sorry, it's just, can you just explain what a waterfall distribution is? So typically, um, if we're fifty um, 50-50 partners, you and I, um, in this business we just started, the distributions come out. A waterfall distribution would uh, prioritize certain uh, payments over others. So if you put in $10 and I put in $0 into the business, a waterfall distribution may say the first $10 that comes out of the business goes to repay the money that you put in. Um, We said, well, we're not going to do anything like that because we're putting in our our acumen, our time. Um, We're making the thing happen. And we think that the market will provide uh, 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 an equity investment um, on those terms. Well, um, when family got involved, uh, those priorities shifted, my partner said, well, you know, we, we gotta be fair. And I had, I had enough going uh, with my business partner that it just, you know, I won't say I caved, but I didn't negotiate hard um, and said, okay, um, you know, it's, it's more important keeping our relationship healthy than it is you know, getting a couple extra points or a couple hundred thousand dollars on this you know, uh, distribution scale.
1: As you're growing, I mean, in the early days, the business was thirsty for cash and you were buying these trucks and taking on debt to do that. As you grew, were you ever able to get to the point where you were taking distributions out of the company?
0: Oh, for sure. Um, we come, oh, 2009, um, we started making a, a decent wage. It was you know not not a good good wage, but um, it uh, uh, it started to grow in 2010 we really started being able to uh, on a, a a monthly basis uh, pull money out and you know the 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 value of depre- depreciating assets um, uh, really can help a balance sheet and a tax return so Um, because we're buying all these trucks and we're leveraging it um, and we're cash flowing decent on top of that. uh, We made, uh, I would say, pretty good money along the way.
1: Got it. Okay. So you're growing, you're at 17 million in revenue. Did you have a sense of what the company might be worth? Like did you, did you do any sort of back of the napkin sort of calculation as to what you thought the thing was worth?
0: You know, um, I, I, we we had conversations um we bantered about it um we had gone to a handful of uh seminars about you know exit strategies and things like that you know put on by investment bankers who want to find you know middle market companies that uh they can charge exorbitant fees to and um i, I had spent it enough time that um i had uh, a sense of value um and what did you think it was
1: worth
0: um, you know i I assumed that it was worth um, somewhere between uh, either uh, three to five times EBITDA or um, one times revenue minus debt. Um, Those were kind of the two metrics that I had in mind. And, you know, when I exited, I ended up uh, probably about four times EBITDA.
1: Got it. Got it. Okay. That's helpful for sure. So where does it go from there? You're going ganglusters. You alluded to this. Notion that you kind of blew up your life and sold your company. So, what triggered that?
0: Well, um, we so we had these values that were near and dear and really, really impactful on how we operated the business, how we trained people, how we who we brought in. Um, you know, we we were subscribers to the um, uh, EOS or traction model in running mm-hmm. our business, and one of the the key uh, principles there is you know a people analyzer, and you look at. Uh, you know, how is the person the right butt in the right seat? And you look at, uh, do they get it? Do they want it? Do they have the capacity to do the job, GWC? And then you look at their alignment with core values. So we're assessing our people every day based on core values. And there, there was uh, a shift. And I, I can't pinpoint the moment exactly. Um, I can pinpoint moments where my relationship started breaking down with my partner but um, I don't know the exact moment, uh, or or whether there was a catalyst. But um, the the theme that kept coming up with my partner and misalignment with our leadership team was that, um, and the the old joke was that that he had uh, he subscribed to our core values, but there was always an asterisk. There was but if and and. You know, I'm not a purist that says, well, the core values can only be read one way. But when, when, you, when team is family uh, applies most of the time, unless it's one of my drinking buddies or, um, you know, uh, commitment to wow, unless we can make more money by screwing that customer, it starts, it starts becoming a problem. So um, I, I had a, really, a, a handful of really frank conversations. We beat it up plenty of times on um, some, some bad behavior and misalignment with core values happened at the end of 16. And I finally said, listen, you know, this is really hard for me, but I feel like I've, I've coached and I've, I've, uh, uh, brought this to the table as many times as, and as many ways as I can, I'm, I'm going to do the best thing I know how to do that isn't blowing up the business. Cause I don't think that's productive for anyone. I'm going to step out of operations. I'm gonna let you run the business. I will still play a pivotal role on the marketing team, on the finance team. And we'll still have our EOS meetings with the, uh, the COO and the owners, but I'll stop coming in. And, you know, it, it, it was phase one of blowing my world up. Uh, I, you know, I, I was raising this child. I, you know, I had, I had the business before I had babies and like, it really was my firstborn and I, you know, I sent it to foster care, uh, to try and, you know, do what was best for the company. And, and, do what was best for the relationship. And, you know, it, it was really tough um, doing that. And um, I was confident that we could make it work um, or that it was at least worth trying. And, you know, things got worse because I think uh, uh, my partner felt abandoned. Then things got better as we rekindled and, you know, started making good progress and fighting for things. Then at the beginning of 18, um, uh, there was uh, some uh, handful of events uh, stemming around a, a Christmas party that we always did our Christmas party a little bit late, you know, after the holidays and, and whatnot did in January and, you know, shit kind of hit the fan at that point. And, um, you know, leadership team uh, wrote a letter saying, listen, you know, we're, we're not behind this guy anymore. I had frank conversations about it um, and it said, listen, we're going to lose people. Uh, If we don't do the right thing, you got to see it from, you know, the other uh, the other perspective. And it just, you know, without getting into details, it was just abhorrent behavior that uh, was uh, not by my partner, but backed up by my partner. And and the the perspective he took was, well, if people don't like it, they'll leave. You know, I don't have a problem. What's their problem? And it just. I started reflecting, and you know, uh, realized I had asked myself plenty of times. You know, am I uh, is he a good person who does some bad things, or is he a bad person um, acting accordingly? And the I, I won't I won't say a, a bad thing about him. He's a brilliant guy, uh, does a whole lot of good. But I think the misalignment with the core values, the misalignment with the leadership team. Uh, and the the realization that I was trading misery for dollars, um, and probably should have broken up years prior, that just became you know at the forefront of my thinking. And I thought, you know what? I'll leave money on the table, but you can. There's a million ways to make a million dollars. I'm not worried about it. I I, I want to be able to hold my head high, and and you know process matters. How you do it matters, and. So I had the the tough conversation and said, listen, you know, our operating agreement is structured with a a shotgun clause and it allows me, uh, when we're at an impasse to say, I think we're at an impasse. We've got 30 days to, to remedy it. Otherwise I'm going to give you a number and that's the valuation of the company and you can be a buyer or a seller. And, uh, I got, you know, an earful, uh, for, uh, for going that direction and, uh, set up plenty of meetings, uh, some of which were skipped and some of which were just not productive. I didn't get a single uh, piece of feedback that would have uh, remedied the situation. Uh, there wasn't a, a creative idea presented by him. And so I gave him a number. And you know, honestly, I thought I'd be a buyer. Um, I, I didn't put the number uh, uh, purposely high or purposely low. Um, I put it at a point where I thought there was fair value exchange and uh, enough uh, uh, leeway that the company would survive because it's kind of my legacy and his legacy but um, he, you know in hindsight it, it makes perfect sense that he was a buyer because um, at a certain age your kids are out of the house and you know most of your friends are at work and you drink in the shop after work every day and you know it's just kind of your your buddies um, I don't know what um, a bunch of money would have changed, but not having the environment and the friends and the the drinking buddies um, uh, definitely would have been a change for my partner so, so it, it made a lot of sense that he was a buyer
1: okay so let's for folks who don't know what a shotgun agreement is, effectively you triggered the thirty day window where you attempt to make kind of and you, you make you try to remedy the situation, but in the event that, that doesn't happen you, the person who triggered the shotgun needs to put a value on the company and then the the other person needs to decide whether they are willing to accept that amount or buy the company for that amount. Is, have I got that about
0: right? Absolutely it, it's a really fair way uh, to uh, manage a breakup uh, that is not uh, uh, amicable because um, it's You know the negotiation of what things are worth, who's going to buy, who's going to sell. It kind of takes it off the table, and you know it puts the burden on the the person uh, causing the breakup or triggering the breakup to put a value that they'd be willing to buy at and willing to sell at, and then it puts the decision in the other person's hands.
1: Yeah, this is uh, great. I'm glad we're we're here. So, so you arrived at this number of around four times EBITDA. Is that right? I did. Yeah. Got it. And so, where did you get that number from? Like, why did you choose
0: that? Well, um, it 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 struck me as uh, reasonable. It struck me as something I could live with uh, as a buyer or as a seller. Um, I I think that he would have been a buyer at a higher number. I think I extracted fair value at that number, um, and. Um, it was something that I thought that he could take to, uh, you know, he didn't have millions of dollars just sitting in, in his piggy bank. Um, so I thought he could get loans. I thought he could find strategic investors or, uh, you know, retail investors, and it's something he could sell. My goal was not to cripple the company, to stick a knife in anyone's back or to give a screw you. Um, it was something that, that struck me as, you know, uh, as really, really fair and that you know, I didn't have the millions sitting in my bank account. I would have been getting loans. I would have been looking at strategic investors. It was a story that could be sold at that valuation.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shotgun deals, what I've I've come to learn about them is that they can be really, really fair if both partners are a similar stage of wealth, if you will, and can be less fair if one partner is poor and the other partner is rich, because they could take advantage of the fact that Core partner won't be able to raise the money unless the business itself is bankable. In your case, it sounded like the business was to some extent bankable. So, so your partner yeah. could raise, you know, and, get, get debt.
0: And it, there, there was an expectation that there would be a willingness of either party to carry some debt. Um, and we had that conversation. Um, and that was in the context of uh, my partner saying, well, the people who don't like it will pick their shit up and go. Um, and when that was said, I said, well, you know, uh, you've expressed a willingness to buy, if that's the approach you're going to take, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to carry any debt because that's, you know, that's just so inconsistent with how we operate and my money's at risk if I'm carrying debt and that's how you're leaving. And he said, okay. So, um, which was just fine for me, you know, got paid sooner.
1: Mm -hmm. That was going to be my next question. You arrived at it at what you thought was a fair offer. Did, did, did part of that it can include sort of structuring by which time you would get the money? Like, was it a hundred percent, four times even to upfront, or did you agree to take some of that money over time?
0: So, uh, with that conversation that we had, um, about, you know, uh, the, the lack of, uh, recognition of the issues and lack of, uh, uh, willingness to uh, uh, try and take uh, do the right thing for the employees. Um, it, it was clear that I was a seller at that point, and um, the conversation was very straightforward. That I wasn't going to carry any debt, and I'd be paid up front. Um, the The nuance and the challenge in this deal was less about you know structure of payments. It was about all the the ancillary stuff. So we had. Um, when I finally left, uh, uh, there were five locations left. We had sold uh, Savannah a little bit prior. Um, We had a real estate firm or a real estate investment that was an 87,000 square foot building that the Minneapolis location uh, lived in with a below market rental rate. Um, And that's great when we're both uh, benefiting as partners in in the operating business. But as a real estate uh, holding, it's kind of crappy to have something that doesn't make much money um, because the operating company is sucking it out if you're not involved in the operating company. Um, the other nuance was we had um, a uh, a company that um, scrapes a royalty off a handful of locations, and it's got no employees, it's got no customers, but it's, you know, it prints money. And so negotiations around those two types of things were uh tricky and um confrontational um and and were the bulk of the uh the challenge once we came up with with a number or i came up with a number on the minnesota sale uh the uh pittsburgh st louis charlotte sale um that number i picked out of a valuation we did by uh by a firm uh, called red path, um, a handful of years prior it was an extremely low number, but it, uh, it was, a it was a decent placeholder and, um, absolutely could have extracted more money. But at that point I was just done. Um, it was, it was easier to say, all right, this is, uh, this is not close to fair. It's low and it'll get, it'll get approved. Uh, and there was no conversation about it was, yeah, sure. I'll take that number. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any level of comfort of being a silent minority in businesses out of state where I had no influence. So this is not a, that part of the conversation is not a great lesson for the, uh, uh, the podcast folks, uh, don't, uh, just blow things off and say, "Ah, I'm sick of this. Uh, I'll take a low number, but you know, it, it was the, uh, it wasn't a number that was going to move the needle relative to the other sale. It had to get done. And um, I was able to extract value relative to, you know, having put $10,000 into growing a business. Um, you know, I got hundreds of thousands from selling uh, that business line, but it just, you know, it was ancillary to the bigger deal and um, not a throwaway, but it didn't get a lot of attention because it, we had enough sticking points that were bigger numbers that uh, I had to get figured out. So it was, um, for me, it felt like an easy give.
1: Michael, one of the things that I'm curious about is you, you sound like someone who, uh, you know, is a very principled individual for whom your core values in your own admission were you know, central to the success of your company. And when you your partners, you know, basically said, okay, I'll be the buyer, and you were going to have to leave, you knew you were leaving the company in someone's hands for whom the values were at times less important to him. What was that like to, to know you were getting paid, which must have felt great? Yet at the same time, no, you're leaving your baby in the hands of someone that may not feel quite as passionately about the values as you did.
0: You know, it was really bittersweet. Um, the, or, I don't know if sweet is the right word. Uh, there, it, it was hard. Um, the team that we had built up, um, I knew that my legacy would live on and those who, uh, were going to judge me had probably judged me a long time ago. Um, and those that were really ingrained in, in the culture and and were really running the business, um, I wouldn't say they were disciples of mine, but I think they bought into the values. And so I knew that they, that many of them would live on, but over time, you know, those people are going to cycle out and, um, you know, you're, you're going to have, uh, new set of values or maybe a diluted set of values, or, you know, it'll, it'll be different by definition because I'm not there. Um, And that, that was, it was pretty hard. Um, And, you know, it seemed, you know, 50 trucks drive by, uh, you know, my daycare uh, was, you know, three blocks from the office. And so I would be driving by as the trucks are leaving and I see a parade of these zero rise trucks. And that that was tricky. It, you know, it's stung for a fair amount of time, but, you know, uh the, the benefit of exiting and focusing on doing things my way, um, I, I started a private equity firm. I invest in turnarounds. I invest in home service companies, um, as well as buying home service companies outright. And I'm having a ton of fun. Uh, exiting was fantastic for my PFS. It was fantastic for my sanity and my family. So and,
1: PFS stands for personal okay. financial statement?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, so I've, 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 done very well, um, and been blessed in many, many ways. It's still, you know, it, it's, uh, it's the one that got away, you know, it's the girl you did in high school uh, kind of <laughs> thing. Like it, it's tough, but at the same time, you know, uh, all things happen for a reason. I'm just thrilled with, with where things have gone and, you know, on my next rodeo, um, I'm, uh, I'm better informed. I'm uh, picking up on uh, cues about personality traits uh, quicker. Um, I'm finding the right partnerships. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of benefit. And um, I think uh, I, I definitely would have, um, if I were doing it again, I would have done it sooner. Um, and I probably left more money on the table.
1: Hmm. Why do you say that?
0: Uh, the part about doing it sooner, about leaving yeah. more money on. table.
1: No, do, well, both uh, really. But I was—I'm just curious as to why you would have done it sooner.
0: Well, you know, the the thing that had me delaying was, uh, you know, twofold. One, doing an assessment of the character of the people I'm working with, and uh, hindsight, I think I've I've assessed that character, and it's it's not people I want to be in business with, and so acting on that uh, quicker would have been better, um, and. Secondly, um, the um, trading misery for dollars and 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 saying, okay, well, it's too messy to break up, even though this isn't fun, even though this is really challenging, and there's all this interpersonal crap and you know high school drama going on. Um, I'll stick it out because you know it it, it pays for my kids' daycare. Um, you know that financial entanglement and. Saying I'm I'm going to actively not make a decision is a decision to stay put, and um, I think that I've uh, evolved and am more mature and would say, you know what, um, I can figure this out. It just it's going to be painful and take a little bit of time, but um, you know, uh, waking up thrilled to do what you do every day is the most important thing you you can strive for, and um, I have the opportunity to do that. I just have to go through some crap to get there. And I, you know, probably would have pulled the trigger in in twenty sixteen uh, if I were, you know, rewriting the script.
1: I'm glad you mentioned rewriting it because I, I, you know, I I want to make sure before we close that I ask you a simple question around structuring a shotgun clause because I think we're going to have a lot of listeners listening to this saying I've got a partner. I've got a shotgun agreement. I'm thinking of going into business with a partner. I should have a shotgun agreement. You're also someone who's gone through law school. So I'd be curious from your perspective as having lived through this, as well as understanding the theory and the academic side of it, what should people be thinking about if they're going to structure a shotgun agreement as part of an operating agreement?
0: Well, I I wouldn't structure the operating agreement around that clause. But what I would really think about is, all right, you know, so often I hear the story of, oh, we're best friends. We're going to get into business together. Oh, we're we're husband and wife. We're going to get in business together. Think about what happens when you disagree. What happens when you're not best friends? uh, What happens when you're at each other's throats? What would be a fair, you know, with your cooler heads today prevailing? What would be a fair way to resolve that conflict and be sure to have an operating agreement for sure. You know, operating agreements, the rules of the game. And I always use this terrible analogy, but I can't help myself. So growing up, we played the heck out of monopoly and we always would take 500 bucks and put it in the middle and whoever landed on free parking first would get that 500 bucks and all the taxes and luxury tax and property tax and all that stuff went in the middle. Before you know it, there's a thousand bucks in the middle. And most people don't play that way. Some people do, some people don't. But if you don't work that out before you start rolling the dice, moving around the board, you're gonna have a conflict, right? You've gotta work those rules out about how the business is operated before you start operating the business. Otherwise, you're gonna run into a challenge and you're gonna say, well, we've got um, $5,000 in the bank. Should we distribute it? Well, let's fight about it. Um, Maybe one person thinks you need fifty grand in the bank before you start distributing. I mean, the, what is the mechanism for that type of decision? What's the mechanism for figuring out how do we um, define who gets paid what? How do we define what happens if there's you know irreconcilable differences? Um, those sort of things. So uh, the operating agreement is an invaluable tool to to map things out before you're in uh, over your head. Um, how you would resolve uh, a bulk of categories of conflict, including breaking up. And so thinking specifically about that shotgun clause, um, just making sure that you've got, you know, it, it's not about trying to put the, uh, the pressure on someone uh, to, to break up. It's really about trying to not break up. And the key element of the, the shotgun clause for us was, you know, there's a 30-day cool-off period that says, hey, I'm really, really serious. And I have rights if we don't figure it out. And my partner's lack of willingness to engage in that conversation about figuring it out. He said, you got a problem. I don't. That, that was my answer that this is absolutely the way we should be going. And, you know, under better circumstances, he would have said, okay, I will take one of the five options that you've laid out, or I will present new options about how we resolve this conflict because clearly it's important to you, Michael. But, you know, um, Came up short of that, so uh, it was time to go.
1: Got it. That's super helpful, and 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 cer- certainly for my own edification, the difference between an operating agreement and a shotgun agreement. Well, what I'm hearing you say is that a shotgun agreement is 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 part of an operating agreement. It's the area where you're talking about. Okay, if all you know else breaks down. Here's our remedy for breakup. But there's lots of other things that should happen as part of an operating agreement, including how you handle distributions, how you handle conflict, et cetera. So hopefully you don't have to trigger the shotgun in the first place. Absolutely. Well, I see, given free legal advice. Nothing in this episode should be construed as legal (laughs) advice. Call your lawyer, call your dentist, call your doctor, whoever you go to for advice, but don't (laughs) consider this legal advice.
0: Exactly, my my friends often ask me, you know, why I didn't take the bar, and I said I don't want to be accused of being a lawyer. Like I just went <laughs> to law school, <laughs> but no, uh, talk talk to your attorney. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, plan in advance and plan for the, the the blue sky, but plan for the cloudy sky as well. And that's I think good. that's that's the value of uh, an operating agreement.
1: Well, this has been a fun uh, experience for me and I really appreciate you sharing in such candor. Michael, where can people learn about you uh, You know, if they wanted to reach out and say hi on, I'm assuming LinkedIn is the best place. So just give us a sense of where people can go to find you.
0: You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Michael Kaplan uh, and uh, I'm in Minneapolis. Um, you can also check us out. Uh, we've got a company called redhookinvestments.com. And uh, redhookinvestments.com talks about some workshops we put on, talks about uh, our turnaround business where we help fix businesses. Uh, it's not so much consulting as you know we, we look uh, to fix broken things, buy things, or find ways to collaborate or um, bring people into our network and jam about small business. So it, it's a whole lot of fun. You can find us at redhookinvestments.com.
1: Awesome. And we'll put that in the show notes at Built to Sell Radio or at Uh
0: Michael, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's been a ton of fun.
1: Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to -to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to -to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttocell.com.
0: Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warrillow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit built slash blog.